Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Rodney Jones about his book Health and Risk Communication and Applied Linguistic Perspective, which explores some of the many ways in which the discourses around health relate to people's behaviour and how we might study these as a route towards improving communication in practical situations. In this interview we discuss the conflict that can arise between medical advice and social pressures and what medical practitioners and scientists can do to get their message across. And we explore the ways in which new technology changes the discourse around health and risk, both by creating new communities that discuss health and by creating entirely new representations that can be talked about. I'm delighted to welcome Rodney Jones to talk about his book, Health and Risk Communication, in which he takes an applied linguistic perspective in examining the relationship between our discourses and our actions in the area of health. Rodney, how did you come to write this book? Well, my interest in health communication goes back to when I was working on my Ph.D. dissertation. The subject of my Ph.D. dissertation was health communication in China. And at that time, I was looking at uh, the discourse around HIV and AIDS in China in the late 90s. And I became interested, first of all, in the kinds of uh, linguistic structures and generic forms that health communication messages uh, took, particularly um, health communication pamphlets, safe sex pamphlets, essentially instructing people on how to conduct themselves to uh, avoid infection with HIV. Um, But then I I, I began talking to um, people in various vulnerable groups who were... um, interacting with these pamphlets and trying to understand how they understood what they were being told and how they actually used the pamphlets themselves as as textual objects and the information in the pamphlets to uh, in negotiate sexual contact um, with um, various people. So I, I looked at um, gay men, I looked at sex workers, I looked at a, a number of different kinds of um, uh, different kinds of populations. And um, I started to realize that one of the biggest challenges, I think, for health communication, but also one of the biggest challenges for applied linguistics, is understanding what exactly is this relationship between discourse and action. That is, what is the relationship between what's written down in these pamphlets or what people say to each other and what they actually end up doing? I mean, in this case, what they actually end up doing in a very sort of physical way. But um, it can be extended to other um, other kinds of contexts in health communication. So, what is the relationship between what a doctor says to a patient and the way that verbal interaction transpires, and uh, whether or not the patient, for example, um, takes the medicine in the way they're expected to take it, or undergoes the treatment, or uh, changes or does not change uh, their 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 behavior. You um, mentioned there and in the subtitle of the book that you're adopting an applied linguistic perspective to these uh, these issues, but I guess applied linguistics can mean several things. What does it mean to you in this context? Basically, applied linguistics to me means using um, principles from linguistic analysis to try to solve real-world real problems. 
right? Uh, so um, I view applied linguistics in a, in a rather broad way. In the history of applied linguistics, the main um, real-world problem that we've been uh, most concerned with is uh, how people learn language. Um, but I think more recently, uh, applied linguists have been concerned with other issues of um, linguistic communication, such as uh, professional communication, uh, such as uh, issues around uh, legal discourse, such as um, forensic uh, linguistics, such as uh, issues around um, mobility and immigration and these sorts of things. And I, I, I think it is very important for applied linguists to try to, so to speak, widen the circumference of, of their interests, because I think that uh, quite a lot of um, problems in the real world have a lot to do with uh, the way people use our language and understand how other people are using language. And I, I think that applied linguistics uh, in general has quite a lot to offer uh, to the world um, beyond uh, the teaching of language. Absolutely, yes. Um, and in the book you raise many areas in which, in which there, there's, if you like, some room for a linguistic contribution. And you begin by discussing how we define health and risk, but a, a crucial point here that recurs throughout is the fact that the way people relate to the concept of health seems to be undergoing particularly radical changes with respect to current technological uh, advances. I guess it makes it a particularly exciting time to be trying to bring this, this new perspective to some of these issues. I think it's an exciting time uh, to be working in the area of health and healthcare. I think it's also an exciting time to be working in the area of, of applied linguistics and language studies uh, because um, all sorts of things are changing about the way we um, communicate uh, with one another, mostly having to do with the kinds of new technologies that uh, we're using. And so, you know, mobile, the mobile internet, uh, mobile technologies, um, the kinds of social networking um, sites and the, the, the kinds of interactions around there, the opportunities that people have to uh, share information, to compile information, to analyze information, uh, to um, participate in the creation of big data sets, and to, um, to use various kinds of tools to analyze uh, that data. It's really quite exciting. So in, in the book, I did talk about a number of, of examples. For example, I, I talked about the, um, the website Patients Like Me, um, which is a, a sort of online health social network where people with uh, different conditions uh, get together and share share details about their medical tests, about their medication, about their symptoms, and, and that sort of thing in a very, very detailed way. Now, people, people have said to me, well, you know, people have always done that. There have always been these sort of support groups, and then there were sort of online support groups. But, but what, So what's different about this? Well, what's different about it is that um, people are not just sharing anecdotes. They're not just um, sharing general information. They're actually uploading uh, the, 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 the details of their medical, of their medical histories, their medical records, um, to, uh, these kind of public databases and then interacting, uh, with other people, um, about their data. And that's a really extraordinary development if you think about it. And there are all sorts of questions that, uh, that come up with this sort of uh, thing. So, uh, questions of, uh, privacy, uh, questions of, uh, how, 
non, uh, non-medical experts interact and interpret um, medical data, uh, questions about um, how, um, how patients interact with each other and, and work together to, to create knowledge, and even questions about kind of activism. I mean, what happens when uh, patients uh, get together and start um, questioning uh, some of the, the ways things are done in the medical profession? And so uh, it's a very, very complicated kind of situation. Um, and it, it's really something that um, it's, it's going to create a, a huge challenge for the medical community. It's going to create a huge challenge for uh, doctors and other healthcare workers. Um, and I think this is um, this is where uh, applied uh, linguists can, can really help out a lot because I mean there, there are a number of ways you can you can respond to this if you're a doctor. One way to respond is to is denial. Say, well, you know, it, it's not happening, and even if it is happening, I don't want my my patients to go on the internet and find anything out about their condition because that just interferes with them listening to what I'm telling them to do. Uh, but that kind of attitude is, is simply not going to work. Uh, you can't escape the fact that 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 people are interacting with uh, sophisticated um, medical knowledge um, and trying to apply that to their own health. And so, doctors really need to develop new ways of um, of communicating uh, with their patients uh, about this. Now, the, the the kind of move towards patient expertise, towards you know medical encounters that um, involve uh, the patient as a kind of uh, as a kind of partner in in healthcare. Well, this sort of idea has been developing for for many many years now. But I think these new technologies really bring this to bring this to a new level. And so uh, this is this is I think an area where applied linguists can can assist the medical community in uh, understanding what are the implications. How do these new forms of knowledge and knowledge building impact on the strategies uh, that we use to uh, to communicate with our patients. Absolutely, yes. Um, I suppose there are, the, there is, in some sense, these two strands of recent development that are the burden of the uh, question of how we interact, as in social networks, online support groups, and so on. Uh, and the other question of what we talk about—the idea that we can have this much more detailed, much more sophisticated information uploaded, as you say, or things like. Uh, genetic tests that you talk about, or all the contents of scans that, in some sense, you know, must seem to want to reduce us to a data file. Yes. I guess a, a question I have, sort of analytically, is: is do you think the analysis of these as uh, texts and talking about this in, in terms of uh, discourse processes is a is a particularly uh, good sidelight on on these kinds of things? I think that applied linguistics uh, has quite a lot to offer. Um, in, in looking at uh, at these kinds of interactions, I, I'm not I'm not sure I would necessarily uh, characterize it as looking at them as texts, but looking at them as as sometimes as texts, as, as sometimes as interactions. I mean, the, the beauty of applied linguistics is that um, it's not one thing. That uh, applied linguistics is a kind of a toolkit that allows us to to look at. Um, uh, linguistic data to look at verbal behavior, or, or maybe we can say semiotic behavior, um, in lots of different kinds of ways. We can uh, appropriate the tools of conversation analysis and, and look at the kind of sequentiality of interactions. We can appropriate uh, ideas from linguistic anthropology and look at the context in which these interactions are occurring. 
Um, we can um, appropriate tools from interactional sociolinguistics and, and look at things like, you know, pauses. And we can even appropriate tools from, you know, more recent developments in applied linguistics like multimodal discourse analysis. And, um, and we can try to understand the way um, nonverbal um, uh, cues and uh, graphics and things like this interact with um, interact with language, and so um, I think that uh, the, the great thing about applied linguistics is that it it allows us to look at uh, these kinds of interactions in a lot not only new ways in, in ways that generally are not um, part of traditional uh, communication studies and also uh, in a lot of different kinds of ways. That is, um, there's, a, there's a real flexibility there. Uh, there is a, 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 um, a long tradition of, of health communication studies. It's sort of in the, the field of sociology and the field of communication studies. And, and of course, they've made um, lots of um, important contributions. Uh, but um, I think that applied linguistics provides a very, very different kind of perspective. Um, a, a perspective that um, looks much more at the, the, the role of language and looks at the role of language in a much more sophisticated way. Um, maybe I can give you an, an, an example from, it's actually something I mentioned, uh, having to do with um, uh, electronic health records. And so now lots of doctors are using electronic health records. And so when the patient comes in, they have the electronic health record um, on their computer, and um, they refer to the patient's electronic health record as they're um, examining the patient or as they're conducting the consultation with their patient. And there has been quite a lot of work done in this um, in the field of um, health communication from a kind of communication studies point of view. And they've looked at things like how the presence of the computer screen affects the eye contact between the patient and the doctor and that sort of thing. But the way they look at it is generally in this very kind of quantitative way where they can say, well, you know, the time that the doctor looked at the patient um, was reduced by 50% or, or something like that and sort of automatically assuming that that's, that's a negative thing. Right? Now, an applied linguist or, or, or a discourse analyst, somebody who is schooled in conversation analysis and interactional sociolinguistics, could look at that same situation and instead of asking these kind of very, very broad, blunt questions, uh, do a much closer analysis of what exactly is going on. Uh, so, for example, if the doctor is looking at the computer, does that necessarily mean that he or she is ignoring the patient? Is that necessarily a bad thing? Do doctors uh, sometimes use the computer screen in a strategic way? For example, when they see that the patient might need some more time to think about um, an issue that's been raised and uh, to give them time to think, they might turn to the computer screen uh, to create that kind of space. So what, what applied linguists can do is to look at these interactions in a much finer way, in a, in a, in a much more uh, a much more delicate way, a way that goes beyond um, things like the content of what people are talking about, and also goes beyond the, the kind of quantification of uh, verbal behavior. And so, when you get to training um, people in, in medical communication, you you can go beyond this kind of skills based approach, which um, tells um, 
trainee doctors things like, oh, well, try to make eye contact with your patient or try to smile or try to act empathetic and can actually uh, get people to to think in, in a much more sophisticated way about what it means to communicate and whether or not looking at the person um, more is appropriate in this particular situation or, or whether or not smiling and, and being uh, empathetic is appropriate at, at this particular moment. Indeed, yes. And presumably as the new technologies emerge, these, if you like, new discursive practices arise that in which people in some sense negotiate how they can make best use of these in communication. And I guess this is something that, that you can trace through these techniques. Absolutely. And, um, you know, what's particularly exciting is the kind of, um, the kind of insights that uh, discourse analysis and applied linguistics can bring to computer-mediated communication. And, um, you know, it's not going to be too far into the future where most of the interactions between doctors and patients are not face-to-face interactions. They're interactions that um, will be mediated through some kind of technology. Um, the, the Xbox One that uh, just came out has a sensor in it that's uh, sensitive enough to um, measure your pulse, to measure your temperature, to measure your blood pressure. And so um, it could be in the future that you'll be interacting with your doctor, uh, not in his, uh, in his consultation room, but through, the, through your video game console. And so this creates all sorts of challenges uh, for people, all sorts of interesting new uh, social norms around, um, around doctor-patient communication are going to, uh, are going to have to, uh, are going to have to develop. And I think this is this is uh, the place where applied linguistics can make a great contribution. Yeah. Um, another technology you discuss, which I guess has some of the same features, is, is the um, genetic testing. Um, in I think in chapter four, you um, talk about the way in which the people using these technologies, the people if you like administering or counselling uh, patients on genetic tests, uh, relate to that information. And I guess that's. Uh, another kind of process that's in some sense running behind the technology, isn't it? Well, um, the technology for uh, genetic testing has um, developed so quickly in the last 10 years. I mean, 10 years ago, it uh, it would cost thousands of dollars to uh, to get a your your genome sequenced. Now, it costs about a thousand dollars to have uh, an entire human genome sequenced, and it costs in in one of these. Uh, Genetic testing services like 23andMe, 23andMe, it costs 99 U.S. dollars to have almost a million single nucleotide um, polymorphisms analyzed, which can give you quite a lot of information about uh, things like uh, disease risk. Now, as soon as you start talking about disease risk, um, it becomes very problematic. Um, because um, even in the best of conditions, even when you have professional doctors or, or genetic counselors talking to people about risk, um, there's a lot of room for misunderstanding, for anxiety. Um, you know, even even the doctor or the genetic counselor may not know exactly what are the implications of this you know, increase or decrease risk for a particular kind of uh, medical condition. And so... Um, the fact that um, it has become much cheaper means that it's also become much more available. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if sometime close into the future that having a, a full genome sequence will be something that pretty much everybody does. Everybody will have 
um, this uh, information as part of their kind of standard medical um, medical record. Uh, now, what will that mean? Well, it'll mean all sorts of things. It'll mean figuring out how to talk about these things, which are essentially probabilities in a way that's useful, in a way that's not counterproductive. And you can easily imagine there are ways that this can be quite counterproductive. Um, for example, you may uh, have one of these tests and find out that you, you have a gene that predisposes you to Alzheimer's disease, for which there is no cure and for which there is no real preventative measure that you can take. How does a person respond to that? And how does somebody counseling that person um, help them to work through that information in, in a useful way? But uh, even more um, interesting to me is the fact that a lot of people now are having access to this kind of information without the benefit of, of, of professional guidance, without a genetic counselor, without a doctor to kind of talk them through it. And um, rather than the professional, what they have are these kinds of online communities where they um, interact with other customers of these testing services um, and, and try to collaboratively make sense of their genetic tests. And as a matter of fact, I've just gotten a grant from the Hong Kong government to, to look at how uh, customers of genetic testing services work together on these sort of online forums and social networking groups to develop a kind of um, lay expertise around this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, material. It's obviously creates some interesting problems, although you don't emphasize this angle in the book, I think, but the, uh, presumably, I mean, there's a lot of research suggesting that people are generally not very good at assessing information that's presented probabilistically about risk, that people, that people succumb to various fallacies like base rate neglect and so on. Uh, is, that a, is that a problem that you see in this? Uh, well, in this a central problem, um, the problem of how how we talk about risk. And I, I, I do touch on this a little bit early in the book, where I talk about different forms of intextualization and uh, different ways, for example, uh, that things are quantified, that we use um, quantification as a way of uh, discussing health and, uh, and risk. And I mean, part of it is that many people are, simply uh, don't have the background to in you know statistics probability to understand that sort of thing, but that's not really the main thing. Uh, the main thing is that this kind of language is and has been um, manipulated by uh, various players, and so in, in any kind of uh, medical situation, you have all sorts of people who are communicating. You have the doctor communicating with the patient, but you also have all of that background noise, you have pharmaceutical companies, uh, you have relatives, you have um, all sorts of people who are contributing to any given person's conversation about health and risk. And um, one of the main ways that pharmaceutical companies talk about uh, their drugs, particularly in places like America and New Zealand, where there actually is direct-to-consumer advertising about drugs, um, is uh, by presenting uh, the statistics from clinical uh, trials in ways uh, that are very easy for patients to misunderstand or very, very easy, easy for patients to, uh, to develop the wrong idea about. And so, um, you know, medical communication is a very, very complicated thing. And I think one of the, one of the main points I try to make in the book um, is that um, I, I, I feel that 
at least the work done in applied linguistics so far, has focused so much on the, um, on the doctor-patient interaction and um, sort of what goes on there. And what I argue for in the book is what I call opening the circumference and realizing that actually that doctor-patient interaction is only a small piece of, um, of the health communication that any given person um, is involved in, uh, that um, there are all sorts of other voices that um, contribute to their understanding and their their decision making about health. So uh, conversations with their family members, uh, conversations with their sexual partners, conversations with their yoga teachers or, or gym instructors or or, or uh, clerks at health food stores, uh, all sorts of um, media, uh, magazine articles, uh, television documentaries, and of course we've mentioned uh, we've mentioned all of the um, interaction that goes on on the internet and all of the texts about health and medicine that come out on the internet. So um, trying to understand, you know, not just how a doctor um, uh, explains risk to a patient and how the patient understands it, but understanding how this conversation is actually contextualized in a whole kind of um, world of discourse and how that, that, that world of discourse affects um, not only, you know, how, how the patient understands risk, but what exactly is the patient able to do about risk? Um, in the end of the day. So, I mean, it's one thing for the, the patient to to come away from such interactions with a, a, an understanding of what they're at risk for or what kind of behavior they should engage in, but um, how easy will it be for them to, uh, to actually carry out that behavior? And, I mean, very often that also depends on communication. Um, I'll give you an, an example. When I was when I was looking at um, HIV, uh, the communication between HIV patients and their doctors here in Hong Kong, um, we found that the uh, patients often had a really hard time taking their medicine on time. And, and as you may know, um, uh, taking HIV medication, at least at that time in the, in, the, in the late 90s, taking HIV medication at the right time um, in the right sequence and this sort of thing is very, was very, very important. And the doctors kind of assumed that it was because it was an understanding problem. It was that they didn't understand how to take it or they didn't understand how important it was to take it on time and that sort of thing. And so they, they tried to solve the problem by simply giving the patients more information. But after we talked to the patients, we came to understand that there were actual barriers, communication barriers in their lives outside of the clinic uh, that had an important bearing on on you know, very practical things like taking medicine. For example, eating with your family is a very, very important part of Chinese culture. It, 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 it's a very important kind of communicative act to have dinner with your family. And um, if uh, during your dinner with your family, you, you find that you have to suddenly uh, take some medicine or even absent yourself from the situation to take some medicine, this creates dilemmas, uh, communicative dilemmas for the patient. And so even something, you know, so, so uh, seemingly unrelated as, you know, sort of having a meal with your family can uh, affect quite a lot the ability for, for people to, um, to engage in the kind of actions uh, that, um, that they need to, to, uh, to benefit their health.
Yep, and this is the theme of your of the chapter Beyond the Clinic. Uh, where, I mean, a sort of take home message from that is that what may seem irrational in some sense or seem to result from people not having understood the information that's being given them about, about health and risk can actually be clearly logically motivated if you look at it from a slightly different perspective. Do you feel that's something that's underappreciated by, for instance, policymakers on health? Well, I, I, I think it is, and I, I think that um, you know one of the great insights of linguistics is that um, everything is meaningful. Right? Um, there is there is no such thing as a meaningless utterance. That is, every utterance has some kind of some kind of purpose, some kind of meaning. Um, it may not be to um, express information. It may be. Uh, some kind of phatic meaning it may uh, have to do with uh, working on the relationship, but every every single utterance has some kind of meaning that is analyzable. And so, if you approach language and communication that way, then when you look at people's health-related behavior, you you are already you already have the kind of analytical equipment to see that. Um, although this does not make sense from the point of view, from sort of a medical point of view, um, that it may actually make sense from a, a communicative point of view. That uh, although uh, this person um, is putting themselves in danger and may actually know that they're putting themselves in danger um, by engaging in a certain kind of activity, it might be that engaging in that kind of activity is playing a very, very important role in their lives, in, in their relationships, in their, uh, their uh, place in the, the community in which they live. Um, it may be fulfilling some kind of very important communicative purpose or a uh, purpose of signaling some kind of identity or some kind of commitment or some kind of, um, some kind of membership in a, in, a, in a community, that sort of thing. And so, if you start to look at people's behavior in that way, their behavior starts to make sense. It starts to um, to take on an internal logic. Now, to say that, that somebody's behavior is logical doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't try to help them change it. That's a mistake that, that, that some people might make when they, they hear me saying, okay, well, you know, they're, they're taking drugs and they have, a, they have a reason for doing it, or they're not using condoms and they have a reason for doing it. But by saying they have a reason for doing it, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't help them to, to change that behavior. It just means that the way we can help them to change that behavior becomes um, much more workable. Uh, it becomes much more sophisticated, that we can go, go beyond simply giving them information, that we can go beyond simply giving them prescriptions and, and telling them what to do. And we can go beyond simply throwing up our hands and saying, well, they're, they're just illogical or they're just self-destructive when they don't listen to us. Right? It allows us to, to try to uh, design interventions that may not actually address the behavior, but may actually address some kind of uh, communicative circumstances within the community that make that behavior either more or less possible. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying seems to make a lot of sense to me. Um, in that light, I'd like to, if I may, turn back briefly to Chapter 3, which um, in which you talk about competing ways of intextualizing reality and uh, give a particular example of the concerns about the uh, side effects of the MMR vaccine. Because I, I feel it makes some pretty interesting points there. What I wonder, really, do you find it difficult to remain, so to speak, an impartial observer of these processes of intextualization? 
Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's really necessary to be um, an impartial observer in that I, I don't think that it's necessary for me to um, not have a position on uh, whether uh, vaccinations cause autism. I, I mean, I do have a position on that, and I, I don't believe that these uh, vaccinations cause autism, and I, I think that that's, that's what the, the research has shown. Uh, at the same time, that doesn't mean that I can't understand uh, why people think that they do, and that I can't understand the effectiveness of um, the kinds of arguments that proponents of that position make. And as I say, understand the, the, the kind of way that that process of communicating about health and understanding um, one's health within one's community fits into people's lives. And so for me, that's, that's a very, very important thing. I, 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 I would like to change people's minds, you know, the, the minds of people who, who don't want to have their children vaccinated, I, I, I'd like to change their minds. But the way to change their minds is not just to simply say to them, you're wrong. Uh, the way to change their minds is really to understand why they believe this you know, and, and, and what are the, the kinds of discursive structures and the discursive processes uh, and the social processes that have led up to um, so many people, and it's actually quite a lot of people taking these kinds of positions. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, I think you make the assumption of goodwill, so to speak, on, on the part of the people who, who, whose opinions you disagree with here, which I get the impression from, from your chapter is, is something you feel the scientists have, in some sense, failed to do in certain cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to... Uh, I, I, I don't want to denigrate um, scientists or doctors. Um, I have great respect for um, uh, scientists, the scientific community, and, and the medical community. Uh, I think that the point I'm trying to make is that um, that really uh, scientists, uh, doctors, uh, and lay people of various kinds um, speak different discourses, and um, a lot of the, the 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 difficulties that they have in communicating. Um, or the difficulties they have in, in, in understanding why people do the things that they do is really a, a kind of a problem of intercultural communication. And kind of a problem of, of it, it, it's, it's not so much uh, that, you know, I'm right or you're wrong. It, it, it's that people are involved in, in, in different discourses. And when I say different discourses, it's sort of like, yeah, they're speaking different languages. But, uh, you know, a discourse is, as you know, much, a much bigger thing than that. A discourse is a, is a kind of ideological position, a kind of way of being in the world, a kind of, um, a kind of identity within a community. And it's very, very difficult to bridge these kinds of, uh, these kinds of discourses. So I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't blame the doctors and I don't blame the, the, the patients. I, I, I don't blame anyone. I, I, I just think that, um, Applied linguists can play a role in helping to uh, to bridge the gap a little bit, helping helping different parties to see that you know it, it's not that people are stupid. You know, I I I I think that people are very intelligent in, in, in general about the decisions that they make about their health, and people spend a lot of time uh, and, and a lot of energy thinking about the decisions that they make about them have their health. And sometimes the decisions are made, they make are not the decisions that their doctors want them to make or that science might say would be the sort of most sensible 
uh, decision to make. But there are almost always reasons for that. And so understanding these reasons is, is very important. And, you know, giving giving doctors and, and scientists ways of um, more effectively communicating, you know, what they're what they're finding out is is so important, so important. Um, and most of the most of my colleagues who are scientists, I think, would agree with me. And I've spoken to them at length about this. I mean, it's scientists are very very important parts of our community, and science inside of a laboratory is not you know doesn't do anybody any good. Science, in the end of the day, is public policy and personal behavior. And so um, the way these scientists uh, communicate uh, will have a direct impact on whether or not what they're saying has an effect on public policy. So can they, um, can they communicate with politicians, for example? Can they get funding for what they need? Uh, can they uh, convince politicians to adopt certain kinds of, um, certain kinds of policies? I mean, we, we see this so clearly in, in things like climate change. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think that um, the politicians have a long way to go when it comes to climate change. But I think scientists have a long way to go as well in being effective in communicating to people about that. You also discuss uh, another case of, of, if you like, intercultural communication back in the medical domain when you, when you talk about doctor-patient interactions. But uh, in particular, you talk about the, the role of narratives in, in diagnosis. And there seems to be quite a lively debate there about uh, how doctors can best obtain the relevant information from their patients, which will enable them to make the right diagnostic decisions. Um, do you take a, a particular position on this? People um, tend to take very sort of strong positions one way or another about, uh, about linguistic forms. So um, I think in this chapter I, I, I talk about diagnosis and, and narrative as two kinds of, um, I wouldn't say polar opposites, but two alternative ways of contextualizing the body. Um, and um, I think within the medical community, there's this, particularly in the field of narrative medicine, uh, you know, there is this idea that, oh, well, you know, narratives are much better than simply, you know, getting people to ask questions. And I, I, I'm not prepared to say that. What I am prepared to say is that uh, there are lots of different ways uh, of contextualizing the body. And so lots of different ways for doctors to find out what's going on in a patient's body and a lot of different ways for a patient to express and experience what's going on in, in, in their own body. And they have different affordances and constraints. And so it, it's not a matter of good or bad. It's a matter of affordances and constraints. And now with uh, new technologies, so, for example, apps on your iPhone that allow you to, to keep track of, you know, how much you've eaten and how much you've slept and, and generate little graphs about, you know, how, how quickly uh, you, you, you're jogging and, and this sort of thing. This is yet uh, a, another way of contextualizing the body, and this is, this is going to uh, create even, even more challenges for people. So I, I, I would never want to say, and I, I mean, I think this is where I think my work and the work of most applied linguists differs from the work of um, a lot of people in, in sort of uh, more traditional health communication, is that, that I would never want to be a proponent of a prescriptive 
um, uh, kind of recipe approach to communication. Uh, I wouldn't want to say, oh, you all always must let your patient tell their story sort of things. Um, in, in, in some situations, having the patient tell the story is very useful. In other situations, having the patient tell the story can actually be a distraction. Right? So what's important is to help people become discourse analysts, to help people to be able to understand the different kinds of affordances and constraints of different kinds of genres of communication and different kinds of media of communication, and also to help people to be able to analyze the circumstances of communication and the relationship uh, that is developing in, on a kind of ongoing basis with the per person with whom they're, they're, they're communicating, and then uh, make their decisions in a much more interactive way, in a much more um, sort of online way, rather than uh, approaching, the, approaching the, the communicative situation with this kind of um, checklist of, of what they're supposed to say or, or what they're supposed to do. Absolutely. I mean, anecdotally, I sort of feel, as a patient, you get the impression that certain doctors are just very skilled communicators and are able, using one strategy or another, to, to, um, to make the interaction work. I guess it's quite difficult to train the, the particular skill set that you would argue is required, though, isn't it? Well, I think it's, it's certainly a much more difficult task than simply uh, giving uh, somebody a very kind of skills-based approach. Um, but I do think uh, that it's possible, and it, and it is it is being uh, designed and implemented in, in, in a number of different places. It's something that uh, is not totally unfamiliar to us. And interestingly enough, it's something that's not totally unfamiliar to applied linguists who are involved in um, in language teaching. Right. So um, in, in quite a lot of language teaching materials, particularly kind of communicative based language teaching materials for advanced students, there's quite a lot of uh, attention paid to uh, helping students to uh, learn various ways of assessing uh, the situation, of uh, approaching um, communication, not as a, as a set of skills, but as a set of strategies. Um, and so... Um, I think that, uh, it, yeah, I think it's a, it, it's a bit more difficult, but I think it's something that's uh, certainly possible. Mm -hmm. um, you talk in Chapter 7 about biomedicalization, this, this idea that with increasingly sophisticated technologies and so on for scanning, we're increasingly reducible to rather impersonal data. But these outputs, as you argue, are still subject to this process of, of discourse construction. So, um, does that mean, in some sense, it, it would be a mistake to think of them as being inherently more objective than, for example, narratives? Oh, absolutely. I think I think that's actually a, a point that I make in chapter three as well. That um, any form of contextualization is a perspective. It's a, um, a a version of reality. So to express something as as numbers uh, or as uh, big data. Uh, or to express it as a narrative, or to express it as a picture, no matter how you express it, you're favoring a particular version of reality. You're revealing some aspects of the reality, and, and, and you're concealing other aspects of the reality. And, and, and so I, I, this, this whole process of biomedicalization um, is, is something that fascinates uh, me now, because uh, on, on some level, um, you can see it as kind of very uh, impersonal, 
as something that's um, reductive, as something that's um, uh, transforming uh, bodies and people into a set of data and, and numbers. But there is also another side of the story that I'm, I'm becoming fascinated with, and that is how people in social networks are actually interacting with this data. And so, you know, sort of Facebook style uh, with this data. And so um, the data starts to take on this kind of more um, personal and, and even kind of hyper-personal um, uh, dimension to it. Um, I mean, we see that apart from, you know, medical communication, we see that in, in all sorts of communi computer-mediated communication. We particularly see it on Facebook, where, you know, Facebook is this, this fascinating combination of hyper-personal communication and big data and algorithms. Right? And then they're sort of mixing together in this very interesting way. But I think most of us um, are already, you know, at this point, very, very far from understanding. And so in my mind, this is, for applied linguists, this is, you know, one of the, one of the biggest challenges. Right? How do we, as applied linguists, start to understand the real core of, um, of communication in the 21st century, uh, which is not necessarily the, 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 the surface discourse, not necessarily the, the words that are being spoken or, 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 or typed, but the algorithms, the programs, and the, the interfaces, all of these uh, sort of new forms of discourse um, that uh, most of us are, quite frankly, not really trained to understand. And so uh, I think um, in the future, if you want to be a good discourse analyst, you should probably learn a bit about programming. Indeed, yes. Um, and in some sense, the, the book comes full circle, doesn't it? Because it, you end by talking about the role of, of communities and, and social networks, in, as you say, interpreting this, this uh, cloud data, uh, which it brings you back to the, the, the original motivation, but from a slightly different perspective, the, the roles of... Uh, the roles of communities and groups in, in um, shaping discourses around health. Yes, I think that um, health is never an individual um, an individual uh, thing. It's 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 not about individual decision making. Any decision you make about your health is made within the context of uh, the social group in or, or social groups uh, with which you uh, interact and will obviously be affected by that. And so even when we're alone trying to sort of make the decision whether to eat an apple or, or eat a piece of pie, uh, we can't escape uh, the, the effect of our communities and, and our social worlds. And that's becoming even more um, prominent because we're becoming much more connected uh, with our with our communities, much more connected, I mean, literally connected to these um, to these electronic means with our with our social networks. And what happens in our social networks always affects um, what happens with our health. I mean, social network research, even before the internet, found all sorts of interesting things about the effect of you know behavior within social networks on on people's health. If people in your social network stop smoking, even if you do not know those people direct and have direct contact with these people, but these people are sort of friends of friends of friends, the chances of you quitting smoking suddenly become much higher. Right? So uh, there are ways that we affect each other. And, and so understanding, I think, for, for 
people interested in health and medicine and, and, and also for people interested in applied linguistics, understanding uh, these connections, this web of, of, of connections that joins people together in very, very complex ways. I even feel that the, the word community um, is, is you know, not really the best, uh, the best word to describe the, the, the multiple ways that we are related to one another and, and the multiple ways those relationships affect the way we think, the way we communicate, and the way we construct our identities. Uh, our time here is nearly up. Um, I, I should ask, uh, given the you know, huge multiplicity of, of very challenging tasks um, that you flag up as possible avenues for research, what are you, uh, what are you working on now? What are your own priorities? Okay. Well, my biggest priority now is um, trying to understand something about health informatics. And so uh, really I'm um, jumping off from that, that material in Chapter 7 where I um, – I talk about um, things like uh, genetic testing, uh, things like health social networks uh, on the internet, um, things like uh, self-quantification. Um, so I, I'm very, very interested in how these new forms of communication are affecting how people communicate and um, behave around their health. And I'm very interested in working with doctors, and I, I, I've been um, talking to quite a number of doctors, working with doctors to help them to kind of make this transition to um, a, a world that I believe will be very, very different uh, from uh, the world that we're living in now, where people will be interacting less with their doctors and more with software, more with algorithms. Um, helping them to make uh, health decisions. And, and doctors will um, play a kind of facilitative role in this. And so I think this is, this is something that, um, that we can make a big contribution to. Absolutely. Uh, are you optimistic about the future of healthcare given this, this possible contribution to, uh, to advancing these processes? That's, uh, that's a very complicated question. I mean, I, I, I think that advances in technologies have a lot of there's a lot of exciting things that can come about because of these advances in technologies around giving individuals and giving communities the tools to uh, understand and take more responsibility um, for their health and for their behavior and I think that's that's a very very positive thing but I think that there at the same time are a lot of dangers associated with this um, one danger being the kind of consumerization of health the more these kinds of uh, capacities for people to take more responsibility for their own health uh, develop, the more uh, the state and institutions feel that they don't have to take uh, responsibility. And so, you know, beyond these um, communication issues, there are larger kind of economic and, 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 and political issues that I think that we need to, uh, that we need to address. And so uh, I suppose I can say I, I'm, I'm um, neither optimistic or pessimistic. I'm um, I'm wary. Well, that sounds like a uh, an appropriate measure of caution on which to end. Uh, so let me say, Robin Jones, thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. I've been talking to Rodney Jones about health and risk communication. This is Chris Cummins for New Books in Language saying thank you for listening.